to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Brian Broder and Amy Nazuku Matata. I'm Brian Broder, and I'm here at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. with the poet Amy Nazuku Matata. Amy is the author of three poetry collections, all of which were published by Tupelo Press, Lucky Fish, At the Drive-In Volcano, winner of the Balcones Prize, and Miracle Fruit, winner of the Tupelo Press Prize, uh, Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Award, and Global Filipino Award, and finalist for the Glasgow Prize and the Asian American Literary Award. She lives in western New York with her husband and two young sons. Amy Nizuka Matato, welcome. Thanks, Brian. Would you mind uh, reading a poem for us to get started? Sure. I'm going to read Table Manners. In India, northerners pride themselves on eating only with their fingertips, while southerners enjoy their foods with the entire hand, to the wrist if need be. No wonder Joanne and I sit stunned at the dinner table as our cousins scoop and slurp their lunch. Dried fish in gingilly oil, puri soaked first in sambar, then cooled in cucumber raita. I motion to Umina, the servant girl. Do you have fork, spoon? She laughs a little longer than necessary and then disappears into the storage room. Each finger lick makes us grimace, but secretly I want to join them in slick smacking this beautiful food. The three-year-old sees my fork and cries until he gets one of his own to bang and draw lines in his plate of sauce. No one here ever wishes you happiness, and now, now I know why. This is supposed to be of your own doing, your own relish, of your own open hands. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Your, uh, your poems uh, across all of your books are rich with physical details of the sensual world. Food especially figures prominently in your work, I think. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> could, you, could you discuss this briefly? Uh, you know, would you consider food a healthy obsession for you? Or? <laughs> yeah, possibly. I mean, depending on the meal, probably healthy or unhealthy. <laughs> I mean, I... I love food. I love to eat. I make no bones about it. Um, I try to, you know, for, you know, eat fairly health conscious, but that doesn't always work out. You know, if someone puts a plate of cupcakes in front of me, um, I think you know part of that is food is such a um, such a part of growing up. In that, you know, everybody says, "Oh, I remember mom's spaghetti" or something like that. So, but the thing for food for me served as an important catalyst in. When I was growing up, and usually we were like the only Asian American family in whatever small town we lived in, um, I'd have friends over and they'd be like, ew, what is that? You know, like worms. And they're like, um, it's called, it's noodles, you know, like, but noodles was so crazy exotic to them, um, which is so ridiculous when you think of spaghetti, right, you know, right. I mean, this is just a different way of serving noodles and pence, you know, a traditional Tagalog dish. Well, kids, I imagine, would, would be especially cruel. But... Yeah, oh, and you can imagine too, so, and of course... I always wanted to fit in, so I'd be like, yeah, yucky pants it, you know, like, give me some mac and cheese, yeah. you know, and it kills me and breaks my heart. I hope to goodness my parents never heard me, like, disavowing their food, because truthfully, I mean, I, my sister and I grew up with such amazing, delicious Indian and Filipino food. Mm-hmm. It was a way to, you know, I, I always found myself having to come up with language to my friends to be like, look, try this egg roll, or try this, whatever, it tastes crunchy, it t- like, finding ways to make it accessible to them and non-scary, you know, and non-exotic, you know, it's just delicious, you know. So I think food was a nice kind of um, 
bridging the gaps of of the weird Asian family with weird noodle food, you know, um, to the to you know to some of my small town friends. Well, and there was two. I mean, your uh, your, your mother is Filipina, mm-hmm. and your father's from South India. Yeah. So yeah. that itself was kind of a, a melding of two oh, different yes. cultures. And I mean, you know, it seems like was the dinner table for you guys kind of a, a sort of a larger metaphorical space? Oh for, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually really that's that's amazing that you that you were able to pick that up. I think that's exactly right. Actually, even now. I mean, the kind of the running joke is my dad is the one who, my, you know, my Indian father is the one who um, taught my mom how to make a good, like, Indian curry dish. Uh-huh. But the thing of it is, is that my mom's curry is what I think more delicious and more authentic tasting than my dad's. Uh-huh. So it's like she she went up to him in his own, you know, a cultural <laughs> dish or, you know, that kind of thing. And now it's like, it's I used to laugh at it, but now I... Just gleefully accept it. My husband, who's from Kansas, Western Kansas, um, makes incredibly, insanely delicious um, and authentic tasting um, Indian food recipes from my grandmother. Mm. Better than I can, and that, that used to irritate me so much. Like, how did this turn out better? This is my grandmother, you know. Um, so even now, we're still, you know, blending the cultures too. Um, and joyfully so, you know. I mean, I think that's a great that's a great metaphor for really how I grew up and how my family is now, actually. And uh, it's also lunchtime, and here we are talking about food. <laughs> no, <but>, surprise. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, family history, uh, marriage, motherhood, daughterhood, etc., figures prominently in your poems. Um, how does a poet make art out of the autobiographical? Or, or how mm. do you make art out of it? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's kind of... It'll, it'll be interesting. The, the book is fresh out, new, just within the past few weeks. So it'll be interesting to see the reception on that. I that's know Lucky when Fish. I was, Lucky, Lucky Fish, Fish is the new one from Tupelo Press. That's right. That's right. Thanks um, for the plug there. Um, you know, I, when I was a grad student, single, I used to kind of like roll my eyes like, great, another mommy poem. You know, <laughs> I have no connection. But what I found is actually I did have connections. You know, I mean, it's... Um, I think one of the the dangers of writing about what maybe some people might think is sentimental is like the idea of like oh you're the first person to give birth right. um, and and not have that awareness like you know as with any subject any any poet worth their salt would be cautious of that with any subject not just motherhood or not just being in a family or being a daughter you have to wonder about that like what else are you making new what are you bringing to the table new and I think for me what I at least hope to do is to kind of make those connections. I, I love finding metaphors um, through food, as you noticed, but through also the scientific biological world. Mm-hmm. My background is actually chemistry, but I love my, my actual reading time is spent reading field guides or books on raccoons or, you know, I mean, just anything but poetry, essentially. So I love finding those natural metaphors working their way into talking about intimate kind of like relationship details of um, what it was like to give birth, or you know that kind of thing, so that I'm not just recording. Hey, here's notes from the delivery room, you yeah, know. Yeah. But finding, trying to find the universal um, to to make those connections. Yeah. Um, and f- universal for me is nature. Looking what what's outside or food, you know. Those are the two connections I find with anybody, with any culture, any gender, any status. Um, Everybody likes food. Everyone can see animals in nature or at least experience them or, or read about them, that kind of thing. And everyone has so, a family. Yeah, <laughs> at some point, you know, even if you consider yourself a loner, you you have your own made family. They so. are a daughter or son. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's 
at least my hopes that I don't want to be pissing off any you know single <laughs> single folks or people who aren't parents or anything, but still finding that they could ultimately see that this is these are poems that celebrate life and living with joy and delight and loving food and you know hopefully being just good genuine people and yeah. like and, and finding the good in people too. So mm-hmm. I know it sounds cheesy, but no. that's really where I was coming from when I was writing these poems. So. I think we need more sentiments like that in poetry. <laughs> I hope. I mean, I'm a big dork at heart, so, I mean, there's no... If I were to write, like, some street-smart poems, I mean, anybody who knows me, would that would be just right. such a farce. Inauthentic, so. and yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. And that would, of I course... I have no uh, street cred, yeah. and I'm, I'm well aware of that, so... <laughs> well, do you, do you think of, uh, you know, the uh, family poems, the motherhood poems, the daughterhood poems, etc., as mm-hmm. being a kind of nature poem? I mean, I think so. I mean, that is, we are, you know, I mean, I teach environmental lit and I teach environmental writing. And I think it's important to a lot of, you know, when I was kind of doing research for how to craft my syllabi, I noticed a lot of people were, you know, including books on, on, you know, plants, animals, but they were forgetting humans, you know, as if we're not a part of it. And that's where the environmental edge comes in too. Like, um, if we're not taking notice of how humans factor in the equation, our planet is not going to be around much, you know. So I think, yeah, that's very apropos to this. I mean, um, I mean, in some other circles, I'm considered a nature poet. So mm-hmm. um, in other po- places, I'm like, oh, I write about family. But I think they're one and the same in, yeah. in some ways, yeah. Do you, when you're, um, when you're assembling a manuscript, um, and I'm not sure exactly of your process of doing this, mm-hmm. and I'd like to talk about that in a second, sure. but um, do you consciously try to... Uh, avoid sequencing like poems next to each other or you know like do you consciously say like well I don't want to have a nature poem section (laughs) or something or like a poem you know yeah you know um that's a good question I think it varies with each manuscript with this one in particular the order and organization went through I want to say at least a good five kind of shuffling like major changes not just oh I took out one poem um I wasn't so much curious, in, at least in the beginning, of sections as I was to how the poems are having conversations with each other. So, for example, the way, you know, this poem A ends, how does this blend into, what what emotion or what kind of mood do I want to set to the next poem? Do I want it to shift? Do I want to stay on the same vibe? It's almost like play, putting together this great, like, set list for a party in some ways or, or setting the you know a good mood, mood music CD it's like making your greatest hits kind of in a way but for one event kind mm-hmm. of and I guess the event being the book you mm-hmm. know um, so yeah I mean some CDs you want to listen to like some kind of dance party music first and then take it down yeah. so people can't stand that disjunction yeah. they need to slow down gently so um, hopefully I, I shook it up enough but, but I found in doing so I found natural Groupings, and it did end up having to be. Um, naturally, it fell into kind of some of the motherhood pregnancy poems that happened towards the end. Yeah. Um, so, it, in some ways, it's chronological, but it definitely did not start out that way. I was really looking at the beginnings and ends of poems, and seeing what came out of that. In fact, I wasn't planning on having sections at all, actually. So, and uh, working with the editors at uh, at Tupelo Press, I mean, mm-hmm. this is your third book with mm-hmm. them, which mm-hmm. I think is is always interesting yeah, when yeah. poets actually find a home yeah yeah um you know what what has that uh process been like um you know how active are the editors in you know suggesting making suggestions mm-hmm. for either individual poems or entire book length manuscripts etc um yeah the for this collection it's very much hands-on um you know my editor-in-chief has seen me through 
three collections, and we've had um, a little bit of change-up in staff here and there. This summer, you know, my managing editor, Jim Schley, and I worked back and forth. I just gave birth um, in June, and as early as July, we were, thank you, and as early as July, we were um, going back and forth on what to include, what to take out. I mean, it's, I, I don't recommend this to anybody, but for whatever reason, right before my birth and right after birth, I had this kind of like whammo concentration of, I don't know, just this extra, extra creative energy um, that I was pouring into my manuscript on those sleepy, odd hours. So bless his heart, he was dealing with emails at four in the morning. Um, whenever I was awake with the baby, you know, I'd suddenly have this idea like, oh, breakthrough, this poem needs to go out or whatever. Um, and, you know, what I also appreciate perhaps most of all is their candor. I mean, they also, you know, two plus no qualms about telling me, yeah, that's not going to work or... Um, I think maybe you've had no sleep, so maybe think about it, you know, and uh, for a new mom, that was especially, I, I, I did, in hindsight, need to hear that, you know, um, but they also were very much amenable to saying, oh my gosh, why didn't we think of this before, you know, how did we miss this, or, so it was very much a collaborative process, not so much during the composing of it, but once they had the, at least the, the most, um, maybe about the fourth edition of this manuscript, that's when we could go back and forth with um, ordering, with um, if there's a couple of egregious poems in there, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, really, I really liked having this kind of overseer so that, especially in my sleep-deprived state, I wouldn't tumble off the cliff and right. produce this wildly erratic um, collection so that at the end, people would be saying, wow, clearly she assembled this on no sleep, you know. <laughs> Um, I felt like I was in very much uh, very good hands actually with Tupelo, and they've and because they know like how I read, they know um, what I can do in front of a crowd. They also know when to pull back and say, "Okay, Amy needs rest," or you know yeah. that kind of thing. I love that kind of family relationship. They also know when to put me out in the spotlight, when mm -hmm. to hold me back, to not overexpose me, to pull me back, and. So, so they're also kind grateful. of managers as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, and so much. I mean, for poets, it's so, you know, I, I always feel so cheesy to say, like, oh, they're setting up a reading for me, or they're my agents, by any means. But they, they kind of oversee this whole ushering out into the world of this book. I mean, this is very much um, partially their creation as well, you know, so they're very concerned on how this is brought into the world. So for that, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. Um, that uh, that period directly following the the birth of your child, um, you mentioned. So was it an especially creative time, or? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I'd like to ideally think I'm creative all year round, sure. but um, I think maybe this is this is my second child, and I don't know what it was. Uh, no other mother I spoke to has had this situation. Now I'm actually finding it more difficult to write than I was the first few weeks, honestly. And it should not be like that. It's usually the first few weeks are so difficult. Um, I think maybe because I have, there were so many times where I was up at odd hours of the night, my mind was just racing, thinking, thinking, lots of thinkings, you know. Um, it's not like the baby can have a conversation with you yet at that point. So... Very much your mind. At least is, not verbal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. and and it, it makes it seem like oh, I wasn't concentrating on the baby. I very much <laughs> was so, was, but different nuances, different. I mean, it was just so so much creative energy yeah. um, was coming forth. I I actually am so glad I had this outlet of putting together my manuscript during that time. Um, because it wasn't a creating brand new poems necessarily all the time. 
I could do that for a little bit, but also go back to the structure of my manuscript. Yeah. So, so different parts of my brain were working all at once. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, do you think that that uh, that kind of altered state you were in, that altered deprived <laughs> yeah. state, sort of, sort of? I mean, were you writing, you know, kind of new kinds of poems for for you, or? Um, I think so. I mean, but but not not wildly yeah. erratic. You know, like haikus all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, like um, spitting out baby haikus, nothing like that. But I think it. I mean, yeah, I'd be lying to say that it, if you look at my, I, I, I don't want to mention them right now, and maybe um, the readers can pick out which ones they think sure. were written in those months. And it's, I think it's pretty clear, but um, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's hard to talk. It's really hard to talk about it without coming off as seeming cheesy and like, oh, I'm suddenly Earth Mother now, and I have all this energy flowing. I mean, I never, I never even talk like that yeah. in my regular life. So it's just all I know is I was awake. I had lots of time to think. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a good outlet for it. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. So, yeah, for me, it happened through birth. Other, but it's also happened in other times when I'm away at McDowell, uh-huh. um, for example, or any other time where I have considered time to think when I'm driving along. You know, there's, I, I used, I was involved um, in a long distance relationship. So, those long hour drives, multiple hours on the road, I feel were very creative too in that way. I've been mean, just, just giving the poet time to think, I think, is just. Crucial. Crucial. That's great. Um, Many of your poems utilize humor. Um, Mm. Could you talk about your use of humor as a rhetorical device? Maybe that's not the best way to frame that question. (laughs) It sounds so serious now, all of a sudden. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, um, and bless you for even saying that because, again, like I can, I always, you know, picture my sister's voice on my shoulder, like she would be rolling her eyes if if she heard that question. Again, I mentioned before, I'm just one giant cheese ball, and so I never sit down to be like, ha-ha, I'm going to write a funny poem now, but there are things. I mean, quick to laugh. I find things amusing easily, so, you know, when I, it almost makes sense. It wouldn't ring true to me if I were to look at the world with a dark, brooding, critical eye. That's not how I look at the world. So when I'm, even seemingly subject, serious subject matter, traditionally subject serious subject matter, you know, I mean, I, I do find humor in situations. Mm-hmm. I think that naturally comes out. I think one of the things I at least try to be conscious of only in the editing process, not during the creation part, is is the humor getting in the way of whatever mood or beauty or or um, or or situation that I want to evoke. You know, are people going to remember the ha ha slapstick part and nothing else? That yeah. that would make me sad. Right. But so only then do I even turn. To even those thoughts only in the editing process right. the creation I mean I just I mean there's so much that's funny I mean birth is funny motherhood <laughs> is funny um, you know trying to put a, a bowl of pancit noodles in front of a, a junior high boy <laughs> is funny to me you know so um, and I don't take myself seriously very much and, and I don't take the world seriously for that matter in, in, in certain aspects so I think that it comes out, I guess, in my in my poems. Yeah, I, that's not really the greatest answer because, again, no, I don't like. I don't want to say like I today I have to do three funny poems to balance out the serious <laughs> ones. But anyways, and I know that's not what you're asking, but again, I mean, there's so much humor and lightness. I think why not have that in my poems? Yeah. You know, why not? It's kind of like what you said. Like anybody can be straight tough and. And like bitter and jaded, I think it's almost even harder to 
to find joy, yeah. especially with what's going on in the world right, right now. Jeepers, turn on the news and it's really hard to smile, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so when I'm in that quiet, considered moment, I do like trying to find what, where can I find beauty? Where can I find joy and light? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on that note, uh, your poems I find are su- uh, seldom uh, overtly distressing or sad in their mm-hmm. tone. Um, you know, uh, th- there is a kind of, um, you know, worked for, fought for, and won levity or joyfulness mm. in the in the poems, uh, which I find attractive. Um, and they do. Uh, they also achieve a kind of uh, a kind of you know poignancy without this kind of overtly heartbreaking you know mm. tone or stance. Anyway, this isn't a question. Could you um, <laughs> could you talk about the challenges of uh, the contemporary praise poem? Oh yeah, I mean I think um, and, and maybe I, I spoke to it a little bit in my last question. I mean there's there's so much jadedness in this world, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I know there's a lot of people who don't like that about, you know, it's it's almost, uh, who don't find, you know, praise poems appealing or interesting. You always walk the line of, are you going to be too sentimental or too cheesy or too, like, Pollyannish? I don't want to come across as that, per se, but, you know, I mean, I can only do so much on the page. What, what people bring to the poem is their own baggage that I feel like I have no control over. Mm-hmm. Um, if people can't pause and say like hey I'm gonna imagine there's I have a poem in Lucky Fish that reimagines um the Lincoln Memorial actually since uh-huh. we're here in DC right. um and what would happen if whenever we get a new design for the penny you know the Lincoln Memorial's on the back of the penny what would happen if I happen to be out there with my wild and crazy kids running all over um you know if people find that image cloying or cheesy there's nothing I, I, I can't do anything about that I think it would be hilarious again mm-hmm. or if any s- person I knew happened to be memorialized in the penny accidentally you right. know? Um, I think that's praising life I think that's praising children I think that's praising just again being alive mm-hmm. I think recently I had been surrounded by so much um, and even just in the news too but also personally surrounded by so much death so many suicides so many feelings of inward um, just turmoil, you know, that kind of thing. And there's a place and a time for sad, reflective poems. I just couldn't bear to do it. Not when I was bringing life into this world, yeah, and not yeah. when I was carrying life into this world. I, f- I needed to do something to kind of say, look, we're not all going down the drain, you know, that kind of thing. There's we still can't, life. We can't. Yeah, we can't. Like, <laughs> I know. For the sake of my children now, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And not even so much that, but even just, even if, I'd like to think that even if I didn't become a mother, I'd like to still, like, fight for the light, yeah. you know, fight for the, um, fight for finding not all gloom and doom. When you meet a person, don't be thinking, oh, what do they want from me? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Not be so jaded, you know. I think, again, it goes back to, you know, um, what I try to do in my environmental lit classes. If we're not taking the time to appreciate this stuff, we're all going to be in our insulated, iPodded, plugged in <laughs> modes and not be even looking at the person in front of you sitting on the train, you know, that kind of thing. That, who knows, that person could change your life or whatever. Again, this sounds so cheesy to people. I'm aware of that. So the, as far as the contemporary praise poem goes, people are going to write poems that they think are praising life, praising beauty, praising joy. If people don't like it, I don't want to say tough, but that's not my problem at some point you know I mean I want to write poems that are crafted well that have musicality and that are a joy to bubble off the tongue 
Um, so I, I try to like bring that, you know, the, the poet's toolkit into, into each poem during the editing process. After that, I can only do so much to help people not be jaded and bitter and, you know, that kind of, and, and gloomy doomy, you know, yeah. and, I, and I love reading quiet gloom doom poems too, you know, there's a time and place for it, but during that time in my life when I was writing these poems, I felt like I needed to bring yeah. joy to the light. It's, it's like, completely understandable. Good, good. Um, uh, well, the the love poems that conclude uh, at the drive-in volcano are particularly celebratory. I mm, think. Um, mm-hmm. Do you find it all difficult to write about a happy marriage? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, some people always joke like, uh, "Is do you get more material if it's a if it's a broken marriage or a, a bumpy marriage?" Or maybe you know? more readers. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, or more readers. Yeah, exactly. The voyeurs. You know, there's um, there's a poem in my in my latest collection actually that and that stems from it's called "Are all the breakups in your poems real?" You know. That stems from an actual, you know, when I give readings and stuff, especially to high school, that's the, the number one question that I get asked during question and answer sessions, unfortunately. And it's not even, you know, oh, how did you become a poet? Do you have an advice to a young poet? The, so the high school the students, yeah, what the, actually happened, college, right? exactly, college students and high school students, they want to know about the relationships, you know, and in some ways, I think that's that's kind of cool in some ways to, because they, they want to know, like, okay, someone went through something remotely similar that I did or whatever, or is going through a new relationship that's ending well or, I mean, or ending badly, you know, or that kind of thing. Um, and there's that, that longing. I think people really want to find a poet that they can, or poems that they can connect in that way, you know, that aren't, again, I make no qualms that I'm a cheesy, sentimental person, you know. Um, but also in terms of, I also don't want to, I don't want to saccharine code everything, sure. you know. Um, so when writing about a happy marriage, hopefully I'm not just saying, oh, everything's peachy king, because that's also not true, you know. I mean, we definitely, my husband and I, who's also um, a writer, yeah, he'll be the first to admit not everything is, you know, like bowls of heaping curry and just happiness and joy with our sons, you know. That's not, it's so unrealistic, and I wouldn't want that, actually. Um, there are trying times, but again, I, that's for another poet to discuss. For yeah. me, I'm I'm excited to to praise marriage, to praise love, really, um, and to celebrate that. So, yeah. um, do you feel like it seems like you feel well? How, do you think that um, it's part of the poet's role as a kind of celebrator, and you know, to make a joyful noise? Mm. And um, and do you feel that you know is that is that sort of the role of the poet in a yeah. larger sense or or yeah. one of the things that we can do as poets or should do or yeah yeah you know i mean i think i'm 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 loath to have any should do's right. but you know if you th- if you look at the the drama um mask the classical drama masks of happiness and comedy and and, and sadness i think they're both they're so often depicted as like one without the you can't right. have one without That's right. the other yeah. drama and comedy yeah. exactly and i think that and tragedy and comedy tragedy sorry. and comedy yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're both <off>. i know <laughs> see we need food we need food right now um I'm very much probably on that happy, like, comedy side, you know, but, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, the sad breakup poems in mm-hmm. At the Drive-In Volcano. I think you, you almost can't have one without the other. If you are trying to be realistic and trying to depict a life, which is what I'm trying to do, not my life, but a life of a persona, you know, that kind of thing, there's still plenty of things that I won't ever put in a, in a, in a poem um, that's just for me and my husband or me sure. and my sons or, or anything like that but I think and there's there's definitely poets I'm very grateful to them who 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 celebrate sadness and who celebrate melancholy and um, 
I'm just not that poet, yeah, you know, sure, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear about your writing practice. What is your process of composition? Um, you know, how, how often do you write? Are there particular times of day or even year when you're more productive? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do, you know, is it like every time you have a baby, you get a write? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I, that's a, an apt question, and um, that didn't happen with my first child, so this was well, that's ridiculously uh, unusual. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, during the regular, I mean, um, right now my husband and I have a fairly, fairly routine schedule. Um, Kind of, you know, balancing childcare between two writers, too, is even another challenge. Um, but we also know that that's what makes the other go. So, you know, my husband will be a, a not happy husband if he doesn't have his writing time. I will be not the not happy mother if I don't have my writing. <laughs> and we're both better parents if we have that, too. So um, we we try to kind of fit that in. I'm I've never been one of the people I wish I could have. I wish I can be that person that's just not working um, to get up at dawn yeah. right before the kids wake up. I just, that's not me. I value sleep way too much. Right. Um, so I write when I can, which is maybe twice a week. Mm-hmm. Twice a week. But again, as long as I have those um, where I just know, unless a child is bleeding, <laughs> um, I'm not to be disturbed You know, for, for those crucial hours and vice versa with my husband. Um, and And whole poems may not come out of that, but I feel like because it's always simmering, some some sort of good stew is always not to do the food metaphor again, but something is always simmering on the back burner, so I don't feel I don't feel worried. You know, yeah. even if I go, say, heaven forbid, two, three weeks, four weeks with nothing, there's still something that there's an open document file. You know, there's a, there's always a notebook that's got um, lines that are that I've just written down as I'm cooking or as I'm, you know, on, on my way to run some errand. Um, summertimes we definitely are able to try it, uh, to, to balance, um, childcare a little bit better. Um, and you know, I mean, it works, it works for us. Both of us thankfully aren't the ones that have that rigid, that need that rigid schedule to write and, and be able to feel like, you know, you're, you're making some headway in the world. Yeah. So a couple, you know, a few hours a week, that seems to be okay right now. Hope, you know, hopefully when the kids are older, um, I'll have more, but that's the reality. I, you know, I came from a Wisconsin fellowship where I had no obligations to anybody for a year. I had one class to teach and all, nothing but to write my book, you know. Um, so I think, gosh, I should have had four manuscripts done in that time. So uh, you can't beat yourself up over it. You know, you make do with what you have. And there's people who work, you know, outside of academia who, who find time, who find find ways to write. Um, so there's there's time. You just have to figure out what what kind of you can cut out of your life yeah um and of course you just uh just published lucky fish mm-hmm. um so how do you know i guess this question is maybe two-part how do you know when a manuscript is finished and um mm. and you know and are you working on other poems for another manuscript while working mm. on poems for a certain way? Yeah, you know, and those are always good questions, Jen. That's always one of my favorite questions to hear other poets give answers to because it varies so widely. And I think with mine, the each book had its own process too. Actually, the one commonality that I have with all three books is that I was working. I never was one of those like, oh, I have a new project, or I'm working on this themed collection. This is my poem about cars or whatever. So I'll put it in the <laughs> car manuscript I think more power to poets who could do it I just I couldn't work that way I think I would actually 
get stopped up if I were to think in manuscript form, that kind of thing. I just kind of write the poems, put in my time at the desk. After a while, you know, maybe, there's no even set number, but maybe, I don't know, after about 50 poems, I start kind of taking a couple steps back, but really not, I don't even think about a manuscript until at least, I, at least that, that far in. So, and that's not 50 poems written, that's 50 poems that I feel like are worth keeping. Right, so, right. so you can imagine like maybe 200 right. poems that have had to be written before I get 50 that I'm not embarrassed about or, or I feel need a lot of work. Um, but because I'm working that far in advance, I mean, there was, po- there's poems in Lucky Fish that I wrote, I guess during the time, you know, 2003, 2002, when Miracle Fruit, my first book was coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I work in that way, not thinking of whole manuscripts, I am able to look at things like, Hey, I think this fits and speaks to what we, what I talked about earlier with like, Oh, this would be a good poem because poem D ends this way. And, oh, this poem I wrote five years ago would be a great companion on the next page for this, you know. So that's what I'm doing now. I have um, poems that I don't know what it's going towards or, you know, that kind of thing. And I won't know until I get about that 200-level mark. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's always there's always something going on the back burner. Right now I'm writing um, creative nonfiction, so a little kind of um, longer, you could almost say prose poemish pieces, but they're they're lyric, and my mind is just thinking in longer sentences nowadays. Yeah. You know, any it, it depends. It depends with each 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 um, each uh, time in my writing is a different kind of phase, I guess. Right now, my phase is not poems. Right now, so yeah. Would you um, would you care to talk about uh, your website? Says you know calls them a collection of nature essays. Mm, oh, okay, um, yep. So would you, yeah, would you, how far into it are you, how yeah, did the project um, start, et cetera? Um, and this one, this is, I guess, a different thing because uh, with poems, I just said I, I don't work towards any project. This one, I, I am at least collecting in some sort of manuscript form, kind of as I'm writing in some ways. So it's it's different how my mind is able to kind of fit that way. I don't know, but um, I, I mentioned I had moved around a lot of my childhood to varying different kind of um, landscapes. So, like, I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. So, right, I mean, I'm used to seeing saguaro cactuses outside my bedroom window, you know. Um, Then moving to western New York, central Ohio, even making some pit stops along the way to Kansas. So, um... I did, we did that. My mother was a, uh, one of the head psychiatrists at various state mental hospitals. So all of these state mental hospitals are located kind of in the boonies, you know. Um, I don't know if it's purposeful to keep the patients away from people or, you know, some of the the criminally um, dangerous patients away from, from society, but that's where we lived. Um, and so there was a lot of playing outside time. So I got to know the geography and landscape very well. I think that was the the nerd in me who wanted to know what is this leaf you know even seeing leaves were so different than in Arizona where it's mostly different shapes of cacti Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing and I was a curious child in terms of biology and and zoology and stuff like that um making dioramas for no reason for no not a school project but just because I wanted to make a diorama um so my the nonfiction essays I'm writing have a, a little bit of, of the growing up, you know, what is it like to grow up in a mental hospital and not be a patient, um, but to live on the grounds, but also to explore the different landscapes, too. So 
they're again like I, I guess they could say celebrating the different landscapes, celebrating the um, the Phoenix Desert, celebrating which is not desert anymore. Sadly, it's all built up uh, right. now, but celebrating you know um, what Western Iowa, you know that kind of thing, and then inserting myself just a little bit here and there to ground um, the reader through, you know. But mostly it is um, kind of highlighting. You don't really hear many. Many descriptions of southwestern Kansas with a mental institution looming That's over right, it, you yeah. know. Um, so and I, I just, who knows? I don't know exactly where it's going with that, but that's what yeah. I'm kind of enjoying doing research on and doing more research on the animals that lived there, or at least lived there at the time of my childhood and stuff. So flora and fauna and, Flo- exactly. and mental patients. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be a great title? I know. Um, flora, yeah, that's that basically sums, sums it up right there for better or worse. Um, with like maybe a 5%, you know, the I in there, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing, me in there. Yeah, but basically, yeah, that's, that's about it. That's my angle, if you will. You know, and I feel so cheesy even talking about projects and manuscripts, but with nonfiction, um, I have to to just kind of envision what am I doing? I'm writing about um, the collared peccary pig in Arizona, and then switch to something else, um, a, some sort of like garden snake in Iowa. I mean, I have to find some sort of thread going through. That's how I'm doing it, anyway. Well, best of luck with that project. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sitting down with us. Thanks. Uh, Amy Nazukamatato. That's right. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune in to our website at www.awpwriter.org.